0: Welcome. That succinct musical offering is called Riff City. My name is Monk Rowe, I am the director of the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College and host of the Jazz Backstory Podcast. Our second episode is entitled Beginnings Part 2, more stories of early inspiration drawn from the childhood memories of respected jazz musicians. Our anecdotes from episode 1 featured tales of Italian parades, Buddy Rich on stage, junior high romance, and a jukebox in Toledo, Ohio. We'll begin today with two tales that have technology at their center. Today's technology borders on science fiction. It's easy to forget that every generation had their own high-tech, most notably in the fields of entertainment and communication. In 1920, the Westinghouse Corporation launched radio station KDKA, one of the first in the country, by 1939, 80% of American households owned at least one crystal set, and radio quickly became the dominant provider of news and entertainment, offering everything from Little Orphan Annie, baseball and boxing broadcasts, fireside chats, and programs of live and recorded music. Jazz combos vied with big bands for airtime and impressionable young musicians can be enticed to the life. By the prose they heard on the air. Kenny Duvern was an incomparable clarinetist, a pure musician at his core. Kenny experienced a less than ideal childhood. In his early teens, he was in serious need of direction, and he found it in the kitchen with a sound emanating from the top of the icebox. Here's Kenny DeVern from our March 2001 interview conducted at the Clearwater Beach Jazz Party. I want to take you back in your career a little bit. I'm trying to think now, uh, you were born in 1935, Mm -hmm. so about the time as a kid when you were starting to absorb music around you, what was going on in your household that you were being exposed to? Anything in particular?
1: Uh, nothing I can really remember because nobody in my family. Remember, I mean, it was the height of the depression, mm-hmm. all the way till the Second World War. Uh, there was not much anything going on except my mother just related that I would bounce in the high chair when she turned on the radio mm-hmm. to the point where uh, I was so strong in the high chair <laughs> that uh, she had wondered whether or not I was going to tumble onto the floor. Yeah, which maybe. Uh, would have been a good thing. <laughs> now that's you know, that's about as much as I remember. I yeah. remember also, you know, hearing. Um, oh, basically the radio. That was the primary uh, yeah. uh, listening device. And then I could just remember when I finally see I was in nine foster homes before this age of six, so this wasn't much fun, you know. One didn't really think about music, uh, you know, between two and six, let's say, right? You know,
0: I, I'm not sure if you're kidding.
1: No, I'm not kidding. You were
0: in nine foster homes yeah. before the age of six. That's correct. Okay. Right.
1: I had a very ambivalent mother.
0: What put a clarinet in your hands? as a young kid?
1: The fact one, I couldn't figure out how to play a trumpet, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we couldn't afford a piano. I was my first love was the piano. Second, I wanted. Learned the trumpet. I didn't know how you could get all those notes out of just three vowels, oh. there's something wrong with that picture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean math was not my strong point. Okay. Then I heard Artie Shaw play the clarinet concerto on the radio. I guess this had to be about 1945 or six. And I fantasized you know, with this instrument, sailing over the whole band. And I like that whole concept you know, plus it was made of wood. Which was part of a growing tree at one time, you know, Mm -hmm. all kinds of romantic uh, ideas a kid might have. Uh And um, well, lo and behold, we got a clarinet, you know, but it was only it was a thirty-five dollar one at the time, Uh and it was a C clarinet and an Albert system.
0: No kidding, a C clarinet.
1: Yeah, and an Albert system. Uh huh. And we couldn't find anybody to teach me because you know it was an old-fashioned system, and uh, practically everybody. Played the Bayham, and we did find an old Italian teacher on uh, which was on, on, on the, the line where Brooklyn and Queens met, you see. His name was Mr. Bruno, Louis Bruno, mm-hmm. or Luigi Bruno, and he taught both systems, mm-hmm. Albert and Bayham system clarinet.
0: Was he a typical, um, this teacher, was he a typical kind of taskmaster?
1: Well, I thought he was, you know, at first. I mean, you tap a pencil on the music stand, and I'd play, you know, these different exercises Mm -hmm. and stuff. But I would catch him sort of dreaming or looking out the window while I was playing. (laughs) And if I didn't do my homework, you know, I would I would improvise. But I was, you know, the, the, I just kept the time going, right? Yeah. And he wouldn't catch it. So that's when I knew it was time to change teachers. When I said, well, hmm, this guy, he's catching me doing all this funny stuff. See? But it was the beginning of improvisation for yeah,
0: me. That's good. You were starting <laughs> to take a ride already. A lot
1: of these to call it faking it. In those You're faking, days. It, I was yes. faking it, yeah. faking it, yeah. It's a true story.
0: Yeah, that's neat. Did, was there a point? Um, where you said, music's going to be my career. Right. Definite.
1: A definite. Uh, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was. There used to be um, Ted Husing's bandstand. Ted Husing, I think, originally was a, uh, a sports car, uh, you know. Or enthusiast or whatever, oh. uh, and he had a, a, a he had he played popular music for like from three to six every day. Uh, I forget what the station was, WJZ or WOR, something like that. And the last fifteen minutes, he played Dixieland band music, you know. And I was I liked that. I liked the way those bands sounded, you know. I liked it especially because the clarinet was free. And then on Saturday mornings from. 11 to 12, he'd play a whole hour of all these different people, you know, Dixieland jazz bands, whether it be, you know, uh, Tony Parenti or uh, Wild Bill Davison or, mm-hmm. you know, who, you name it, and uh, whoever was around at that time. Um, and one day he played a Muggsy Spanier recording of uh, Muggsy Spanier's Ragtime, and they were playing um, Memphis Blues. And I was just standing in the kitchen listening, I remember, you know, and I heard this, was it because the radio was on top of the ice box, you know, and, and I heard this instrument growling and grunting and, and this and this beautiful background, like organ in the back of him, you know, band playing whole notes. Pee Wee Russell playing clarinet. Well, you know, you can go look at paintings, you can read books, you can see movies, you can listen to music, and if you haven't had a musical experience from any one of those things, you're never really going to be hooked. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if a book can make you laugh and cry, and the same with a painting, or whatever, if you can experience something, well, that was. That you know, probably that you just listen, Mm -hmm. you know, like a a a fan. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yay! But if it doesn't really grab you emotionally, yeah. and I stood there, I remember, I transfixed, looking at that, you know, radio, and Uh, I said, "That's it. I want to do that for the rest of my life." I was about fourteen.
0: Kenny fashioned a life and career as a pure jazz soloist avoiding potentially profitable studio work and the frequent Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw-type tribute gigs. He always knew exactly what he wanted out of a performance and whomever he shared the bandstand with. Kenny invited me to sit in during one of his frequent appearances at Hamilton College and graciously allowed me to choose the tune. When I said, Summertime, he responded emphatically, No, that's my number. He played it later that night and proved his point. We'll hear more from Kenny in subsequent episodes. How about a riff from our orchestra? I had my own memorable radio moment, although it did not come from the top of an icebox, but from a handheld transistor radio. A.M. only, and a single earplug. It was high-tech then, a prized possession, and in my early teens I discovered Harry Abraham, a late-night jazz DJ on WHAM from Rochester, New York. Harry possessed the required jazz DJ voice, deep, deliberate, a bit mysterious, and with evidence of a -a two-pack-a-day habit. Late night meant the radio was next to my ear in bed, well after lights out. One night, this piano tune came through the airwaves. The full recording was followed by... Pardon the homemade rendition. That was the Junior Mance Trio with a title track from their latest LP, Harlem Lullaby. I can't describe why that song got me then or why it still gets me now. Somehow it made me nostalgic for something I had never even experienced. Imagine the thrill when 30 years later... I sat with pianist Junior Mance for an interview. I've learned that an astute interviewer does not engage in telling their own stories. But he didn't know that then, so I shared it with Junior Mance, the story I just shared with you. Here is his response from our July 1995 session.
2: But What would you say about under the sheets? Uh, (laughs) I guess I was about 10 years old. My dad asked me one Christmas, "What do you want for Christmas?" Uh-huh. You know, I said, "I want a, I want a table radio." <laughs> you know, this was before they had the pull battery portables yep. and all that. You know, and he's shocked. said what the hell does he want a radio for? <laughs> you know, well, they would listen to all the broadcasts at night. You know, like Earl Hines would broadcast from the Grand Terrace, and uh, there was also another place in Chicago, I think, called the Garrick Show Lounge, where I remember. Uh, Don Bias and uh, J.C. Higginbottom. were in a, a small group there, and they would catch all. You know, but that was the days when there were more radio broadcasts than there were records. You know, and uh, but they came on so late, my folks wouldn't let me stay up to listen. You mm-hmm. know, but I'd ease up and crack the door. You know, and I'd sit there and listen. You know, <laughs> so, so I said, "I'll fix this." You know, I asked for a radio, so they gave me the radio for Christmas. You know, so uh, I remember. I would listen. And the Earl Hines would come on, and I'd search that the volume down real low till I found it. You know, then I would get under the covers, you know, <laughs> with the with the pillow and all, you know, and listen to it, you know. And uh, and I, every night this went on, and they were, they were none the wiser, you know. And then after it was over, I would put it back on the table, you know. And after it was over, that was, that was the time. Of, you know, my mothers usually come in and tuck you in, you know fake like I'm sleeping. <laughs> yeah. uh, well one night <laughs> I fell asleep before the broadcast went oh, off yeah. and, uh-uh. and radio and everything its under the pillow, you know, sound asleep. So it woke me up, you know, and she pulled the pillow back, you know, and I said oh, this is it, I know I'm going to get it. <laughs> she called my father in and they laughed. Oh, man. <laughs> they said yeah. hey, look at that. Great. So then, after that, they started letting me uh, listen, as long as I was in bed, mm-hmm. you know, and I could turn it on, you know, and listen to
0: it. <laughs> Junior's parents were rewarded as their son pursued the sound he heard from the radio, playing his first gig at 10 years old. After a series of apprenticeships with Cannonball Adderley, Dizzy Gillespie and Dinah Washington, he fashioned a successful career as a leader of his own trios. My transistor radio is long gone. But the Harlem Lullaby LP is still on my shelf, graced with Junior Mance's autograph. A number of jazz icons, including Louis Armstrong and Lester Young, experienced a jump start to their careers, performing for the public before they were teenagers. We can add vocalist, actress, and lyricist Annie Ross to that list. The daughter of Scottish vaudevillians, she was born Annabelle Macaulay Short in Surrey, England. In 1930, and by the age of three, Annie was part of the Family Act. Her early career itinerary included residencies in New York, Los Angeles, London, and Paris, eventually leading to her association with Dave Lambert and John Hendricks, the same John we heard from in Episode 1. Annie spoke about those formative years during our January 2001 interview. In... Um in your home before you came over, you said you were precocious, and were you singing and doing all my that? My mother and
3: father had an act. Oh, okay. we were. I had three brothers, and at that time my little sister wasn't born. But uh, we used to work uh, bandstands in the park, and then my father would pass the hat, so we all had to do something. Someone <laughs> would, you know we didn't have tickets, because we weren't that rich to print tickets. So, uh, but we all played a part in the show. My mother was a comedian and sang, and my father sang, and my brother sang. So, it was a natural kind of, you know, development.
0: What kind of songs would would you have sung?
3: Songs that my father wrote. (laughs) No kidding! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd pretend I was lost. I'd walk up to the uh, little bandstand and pretend I was lost, and and the, the, there was a, an actor playing a policeman, and he was chewing on a big Danish or something. And I would say, you know, I'm hungry and I'm lost, and, and he'd say, well, if I give you a, a bite of this, what can you do? And I'd say, oh, I can sing and I can dance. and at which point my father would play an, ar- play an arpeggio on the accordion, and I'd start to sing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's neat. And, and then when you got to New York, you must have been in some kind of uh, contest for child actresses. Yeah,
3: um, I had a little playmate in the building I was staying in, and uh, she told me her father had a radio show. So when her father walked in, I said I should be on it. And it was a contest for children, and the man was Paul Whiteman. It was Paul Whiteman? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I won. I had a kilt and a Glengarry and all those Scottish things. And I went out to Hollywood. And my mother thought I was going to be, you know, a Shirley Temple. Well, they already had a Shirley Temple. Uh So I just settled down and went to school,
0: mm-hmm. and so you you say your family went back to Europe,
3: and, and you followed back to Scotland. Uh huh. No, I didn't see them until I was seventeen. Wow. And then I stayed a couple of weeks and went down to London. Mm-hmm. Got a job in a club, bought a secondhand dress, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs>
0: Can you recall what um,
3: kind of wages you were working for back then? Oh yes, seven pound ten a week.
0: And that translates to uh, about...
3: About ten bucks a (laughs) week. But
0: I didn't care. Yeah,
3: You know, it was enough to pay my rent. I could eat at the club.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I was singing many obscure Rogers and Hart and Cole Porter and Jerome Kern and... I mean, they had never heard that before. It was a private club, very snooty. But they did give me a little button to switch on when I got up to sing, which gave me a little spotlight. Oh. So, a bit like Marilyn Monroe at uh-huh. Bus Stop. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> was that, um, is the word cabaret singer appropriate here no no okay
3: a cabaret singer gives a performance uh-huh i didn't give a performance i sang with a band okay you know yeah which was as it should be i was starting out it was the mm-hmm. best experience
0: Yeah, you know. right and again what kind of tunes would that particular band have been doing
3: oh um i've got five dollars and uh you know all the all the great standards mm-hmm. of the time.
0: Yeah. When was your first chance to uh, record? When I
3: went to Paris, I was living in Paris, and uh, Moody James Moody had written a tune with no words, which was kind of prophetic in a way, yeah. because I've sung many songs without words. And it was called Le Vent Vert. And that was the very first time I ever made a record.
0: Did you set the words to it?
3: No. Yeah.
0: Ooh. And so it was a it was a um a single record. The A and a B side. Yep. Yep. Seventy eight. It was a seventy-eight. Yeah. Did you like the way it came out? Oh, you were like in heaven, right? Yeah, (laughs)
3: with James Moody. you know. I I had just heard things to come, Mm -hmm. Dizzy Gillespie's tune, and that hit me like a freight train. I didn't know what was going on. It went by like a bullet train. I'd never heard musicians play like that,
4: Mm
3: -hmm. and so I you know I was acquiring my knowledge of Dizzy's band and uh, not so much Basie's band because that came later but all the great musicians and, mm-hmm. and many of them were in Paris you know because of the exodus of the black musicians yeah. to Paris for the acceptance of their music and you know, it was Kenny Clark, and uh, Don Bias, and Rex Stewart, and
0: on and on and on. Annie Ross became as respected in the jazz world as the players she was enthralled with. The seven LPs recorded with Lambert Hendricks and Ross remain as consummate examples of vocal jazz arranging, scatting, and vocalese. We included vocalists in our jazz vocabulary during episode one. The word for today is basic to all performing musicians. I speak of the gig. It was one of the first words my two daughters understood. At least they knew that dad was loading things into the car and would be gone for the night, or perhaps for a week. Jazz musicians in particular are constantly in search of the next gig, whether it be a one-nighter or an extended road trip. The word dates back to the 1920s, derived from engagement. The abbreviation is understandable. What hip musician wants to say, I procured an engagement this evening, when they can say, I got a gig. Musicians are not pleased that the term gig has now been usurped in multiple ways. First, it was the DJs. It wasn't enough that one non- or former musician with a sound system could replace a band. But to have them use our word, well, thats what's the term? Beyond the pale? Or a drag? One of the others. Let the DJs have an engagement. And now we have the gig economy. We weren't aware that gigs even registered in the economy. But then I read a definition. Gig economy a free market system in which temporary positions are common and organizations hire independent workers for short-term commitments, typically without benefits and regularly prone to cancellations. I thought, well, that is a gig. And it's our jazz vocabulary word for episode two. Speaking of gigs, I have one tonight. So let's wrap up with another one of our favorite sessions. (laughs) Even the casual jazz fan has heard the name Adderley. At least I would like to think so. Julian Cannonball Adderley has been and remains my favorite saxophonist, and his brother Nat played a key role in the success of the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. Nat was the band's one-man brass section and composed the majority of the band's most memorable tunes, including "Hummin," jive samba, and the work song, the subject of our last excerpt. Nat referred to it as his Social Security song, as the frequent cover versions provided him with income above and beyond gigs. It begs a question. What, if anything, inspires songs that become successful and iconic in the genre? Nat had a response to this, but before we listen, it would be worthwhile to hear a bit of the tune. Well, to a one, two, three. That's it. Here's Ned Adderley from our May nineteen ninety five interview sharing a childhood memory that paid dividends later in life.
4: Now I have done songs on the spur of the moment that are that are not particularly extraordinary or one way or the other that were done because we were on a record date or because we needed a Mm -hmm. certain kind of song but but uh, generally like my most famous song the work song is a song that was based on when I was a, when I was a child, they were paving the street in front of my house in Tallahassee, Florida. There was a, a, the, the the penal system was the chain gang, mm. and they had the chain gang people paving the street. Well, I was not even in school yet, so I was sitting and watching they do, and they fascinated me these men because they sang these songs where there was one guy and then a row of maybe six abreast, two guys. And they were, there was red clay, very hard. And they had to break this hmm. clay so that they could come along and pave the street. It was a major highway between Jacksonville, Florida and Pensacola. Tallahassee is right in the middle well when these guys the guy in front would hit boom and when he he'd, he'd drop his hammer on the, the he'd sing something da, 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 and then everybody else would hit boom and they'd answer doo, 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 and and it kept repeating and I was sitting there fascinated just I loved it. And I never forgot it. You held that until? Um, sure. Because I wow. used to, as I, as I went along, went now and then when I was humming something i just hum a question and answer thing and remember that. I also remembered it because I went in the house and made lemonade for these guys who were doing that. My mother would come home from school, she was an elementary school mm-hmm. teacher. My mother came home and said, Where's, where, where are all my lemons and, <laughs> and, and, and the sugar, the sugar was expensive. And I said, well I was giving those guys, you know, the guys out front. And that, 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 I, I liked the guys, you know, and they let me talk to them. Yeah. And, and they all seemed to like me. And uh, Mama said, listen, those guys out there because they did something wrong, well I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that mm-hmm. too well. They still seemed to side. I went on, I got a couple of spankings about that. Yeah. In in my house spankings were they became a bit violent. Mm-hmm. You know, spanking. But the point is, later on when someone asked me for a song, as a matter of fact, I'll go on and tell it exactly like it was. Bass player named Keeter Betts plays with We've heard with his Ella name Fitcher. a few times today. Keeter was getting ready to do a record date. We were now professional musicians, Cannonball and I. And uh, Keeter said he not to write one of those songs for me. And I went to the hotel in Washington and I, was, and I was doing the work song. And the more I did it, the more I thought about it and I liked it. And so I stopped. I finished writing it. And then I wrote another song and decided to give Keeter another song because I had a record date coming up and I decided I wanted to do that song mm-hmm. on on my record date that's one example of where the inspiration yeah. for a song comes from it is perhaps the most the the most poignant example that I could give yeah. for the way that I see where the music comes from where it goes there other reasons for others but uh That is probably the best one that I could do. All right.
0: Nat mentions Keter Betts, who was almost the recipient of the work song. The same Keter who reminisced about following the Italian parade in our first episode. Nat Adderley enjoyed a long career, composing more Social Security-worthy songs, recording numerous records with his brother, and mentoring Nat Adderley Jr., who became a noted keyboardist and music director for Luther Vandross. I believe our set has gone into overtime. Fortunately, I see our saxophonist is back in place to play us out. Our next episode will explore the learning process that young jazz players experienced, occasionally in, but mostly outside the classroom. I encourage you to check out the complete video interviews of these artists on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel, as well as their recorded music. Thanks for tuning in to Jazz Backstory. We'll see you on the flip side.